for us. That was so bad. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Cool. Um, all right, great. Well, welcome back to a new table. Hi, thank you. We have our resident therapist, I think at this point, Nigel, <laughs> who's back to chat with us about mental health. And um, obviously doing today a deeper dive when it comes to mental health in the corporate world, uh, you know, in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's very appropriate that our sponsor today is actually XNY, amazing company, um, which uh, is basically like the place for better business, um, flexible workspaces in London. They've got amazing locations uh, all over the city that promote and house uh, businesses that are very purpose-driven. And I know it's definitely in their, in their ethos and their values to really make sure that they are there for their employees and that they consider mental health as part of their, um, you know, their benefits and their programs and within their culture. So I know they were very happy to be able to be a part of this episode in this wonderful space. So, um, so yeah, so I'm really excited about this particular episode, obviously because it's, um, I think it's something that's really relevant for us to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can totally see how this is a conversation that's going to be super appropriate for anybody who is listening, who has a job, who, who, who works and who is an employee and to consider like how they can find balance, you know, work-life balance, but also for people who run businesses and who manage teams and what they can do as employers and as you know company leaders to have a lot more like more more consideration for mental health um providing a more sustainable environment for everyone so yeah i think this will be a very interesting deep dive okay um so mental health in the workplace now i think this is something a conversation that's really been evolving a lot especially in the last couple of years i know that Things have changed a lot in the mental health space with the pandemic, post-COVID. Um, but talk to us about how that's shifted also in terms of how people are in the, in the workplace. I suppose a few things have changed, haven't they? I think people are more aware of it. I think employers are more aware of the mental health of their employees, whereas perhaps if you go back, not that far really, but they were, that was something really wasn't discussed in the workplace. and. Although in theory employers had a duty of care, I don't think they really saw that as, as part of their remit. Um, I think the pandemic probably changed quite a lot in that um, people gained the ability to to work away from the workplace, so to kind of work at home, didn't they? I think if if someone had said to you pre-pandemic that you know half of the workforce were going to work at home for a couple of years, probably thought that was something that was beyond possibility was never right. going to happen but it did happen 
in real time. Um, we didn't see any major change in productivity. Um, you know, people work just as hard at home as they did in the office. You know. Right, because I think before uh, companies were a little bit worried if, you know, employees working from home meant that they were less productive. So it wasn't really something that people allowed or companies allowed, but then it became a necessity. And obviously, I think we almost saw like a different shift where. Yeah. And I think for some people anyway, it kind of allowed people to manage their lives better as well, because by being at home, there were sort of small things they could do so they didn't have to take time off from work. So there was kind of more flexibility, wasn't there, I think, because it was, was what we saw during the pandemic. And then since then, we've seen some people continue to work from home. Some people have gone back to the office. But certainly from the people I talk to, probably hybrid working is probably the most popular. Mm -hmm. So people have this choice of going into the work or staying at home. And we seem to have a pattern now, don't we, where people stay at home Monday, Friday, and tend to go into the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That seems to be how a lot of people work it, but obviously there are kind of individual patterns. Um, I think there's also something previously about when people did have mental health issues, they would disguise that from their employers. So the stated reasons for absence would tend to be physical things, wouldn't they? Whereas actually now I think it's much more likely that people will get doctor certificates that say stress at work, anxiety, depression, whereas previously we didn't see that. Hmm. Do you feel like it's almost like it was perceived as not necessarily a valid um, reason to take time off? Or do you think, or sometimes I'm thinking uh, people have this perception that they would come off as more of a liability, you know, as, as a productive worker, if they kind of admit that they are struggling? Probably a couple of things, isn't it? I think part of it might be people like to justify why they're off. So I think they're comfortable if they've broken their leg or they've broken their arm or they've just had an operation because it's obvious they're poorly right? and that's more accepted by other people. Whereas people have got a mental illness, I think sometimes they want to feel the need to justify that to other people because you can't see there's anything wrong with them. I think some people feel a bit guilty for not being at work because you know, in some respects they think, well, I'm still fully functioning. You know, I can still walk, I can still move around but I'm not coming to work so I find that with clients you know sometimes when clients have had a period of time off with 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 mental health issues they'll often say well, what do I say to people when I go back to work because they're immediately uncomfortable about how do they justify this period of time they've had off right okay so like people are mostly stressed about having a good story to yeah, yeah justify their absence and maybe there's a perception that saying oh, I've been off with anxiety won't quite cut it so do I invent a story and say I've had a gastric illness or something like that? Whereas I would always encourage them to just go back and say, well, I've been off because I've had some mental health issues, but I'm okay now because there's nothing wrong with saying that. So do you think, what do you think has changed? Do you think it's mostly the acceptance that we have now today in modern society with, um, you know, the validity of mental, I mean, I don't want to say mental illness, but like just mental health challenges or is it, it, has the change, do you think, come more from, you know, the corporate side, employers actually, you know, realizing that this is something to consider and to be supportive of? I think it's probably a couple of things, isn't there? I think, I think the whole concept of mental health and mental illness is a much greater part of society. So we've seen a lot of high-profile figures, high-profile figures in the world 
being very open and honest about their mental health challenges. So I think that's changed the agenda a little bit in that it's now more accepted. But I also think employers' approach to employees has changed in that we've got more sophisticated support networks, haven't we? So we've got things like um, employee assistance programs where employees can ring a telephone number, kind of access counselling, if you like, or access support without their employer primarily knowing it's them. There's right. a level of being anonymous in terms of being able to reach out for support, but not having to directly tell your employer that you are struggling with something. I think that's quite helpful. Hmm. Before, I mean, I think the the norm has been HR, human resources. I know that that's your background, right? Like you, so you've got this wide spanning career where you actually started hmm. in the corporate side and then you moved over to, um, you know, public, and then now you're doing your private practice. But when you were working in the corporate world, do you like? I guess did people assume like is what what is exactly the HR support that most companies have? Is that sufficient? Do you think it was it's it was comprehensive enough before? You know, is do we consider mental health support and access to different programs? like in addition to the standard HR support that people can find in your standard company? I think it varies a lot. I think the first thing I'd say is that most support networks inside companies tend to be quite old, quite historic. So they tend to be focused around physical ailments. So if you think about it, when people go off sick for an extended period of time, there's typically a process in place where they'll send you to see the doctor or they'll, they'll have all sorts of interventions and meetings with people because that's been designed around, I don't know, you've had your appendix out, your operation was four weeks ago, when do you think you'll be coming back to work? So it's kind of probably perceived as okay to talk about those things, but those processes in terms of mental illness probably don't work as well. So if somebody's got a deep level of anxiety and that anxiety perhaps is related to the workplace, it's probably not appropriate then to have loads of interventions and have HR coming round to your house saying, so how are you doing then? When are you coming back? Because that's probably counterproductive. Mm. So I think there needs to be some subtle changes in terms of, I think employers more and more want to give support, but that support probably needs to be given by third parties. Right. Okay. Like um, not just from an anonymous place, but just from a place where there's like, Level, Almost there's no bias, there's yeah, no Yeah, a level agenda. of objectivity in terms yeah. of what's going on here. Because you know, it could well be, couldn't it, in the workplace that it's your boss that's driving the anxiety. The last person you want managing your return to work is that very same person. Right, yeah. So, um, so I mean, in general, would you say that they're... So, like, okay, when you were in the corporate world, what were the things that you were dealing with the most that was like the biggest, the biggest trends that you saw? Probably a couple of things. I'd say people not having sustainable work-life balance, so long hours culture, people almost getting to the point where work becomes everything, so they got nothing else in their lives. They're almost living at work, working 70, 80 hours a week. Um, and that just becomes thoroughly unsustainable and those people will fall over at some point like when they do is questionable but they will 
and so those sorts of issues got picked up quite quickly. Um, I think interpersonal relationships, so direct relationships between you know employer and employee, managers, leaders, those sorts of people, um, and sometimes those those relationships could be quite difficult, quite challenging, and they could lead to all kinds of mental health issues. Mm. So, like issues like what, like um, I guess, uh, uh, I guess when you just don't really get along or gel well with your direct supervisor, and that how that could potentially impact your career development or within a company. Yeah, and it always wasn't about what actually was happening, but sometimes it's about what people perceive to be happening, isn't it? Mm. You know, so that person's making me feel like that. That person's pushing me in that direction, and that might not always be true. But some people's perception is reality, isn't it? So, yeah, there were lots of issues like that. Mm. Is that, and how is it now with the people that you do see? Because I understand that, you know, a lot of your clients are also coming from, um, you know, have a lot of work stress. And is do you notice, like, is it the same these days where it's mostly about the unsustainable workloads or interpersonal relationship issues? Yeah, so it tends to be... Perhaps I see it from the other from another perspective now. I think when I saw it when I was in corporate, I saw it more as the employee deciding to do this and deciding to do that. So they were very much the architects of that. I work lots of hours, I kind of live here. I think now as a therapist, when I see people come through my door, I see it from a different perspective. I tend to hear, I feel obligated to do this. I feel I have to work these long hours. And actually, given a choice, I would choose not to. Okay. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, it, I guess, because I'm thinking especially, you know, we're in London. It's a, uh, it's kind of a bit of a grind culture. I think there's a bit of a unspoken about social pressure to, you know, it's like a, who, who can one-up the other person and, well, I worked 60 hours that we all, oh, well, I did 70. Well, I have no weekends. And it yeah. almost became like a badge of honor. Yeah, and I think there's all the tools to support that as well, isn't there? So if you go back years from now, you know, people would leave the office and they would leave the office, whereas now they just take up another location, but they're still at work. So lots of people describe this, this sort of 24-7 culture that, you know, it might be Sunday afternoon and they're watching the TV, but ping their phone goes and it's their boss has just sent them an email and they read it. And then as soon as they read it, they feel mm, a better reply. So they reply. So actually at that point on a Sunday afternoon, they're kind of back in the office and they're back at work. And that kind of means that people aren't getting a break from work and they aren't resting and rehabilitating, are they? They're actually always at work. Yeah, that's true. Because we talk about, um, you know, we talk about the benefits of being in, in a modern society where we're ultra connected. And actually there's quite a lot of... Um, dark sides to that and like being so connected you have a hard time knowing when to shut off and again we look at tools and technology that help us be more efficient and more productive you get to have access to your emails and to important files on mobile on the go you can work it permits you to work remotely to work in different locations but also at the same time like the dark side to that is it's usually your also your personal phone and mm. you will have the notifications. So you can tell yourself, okay, I'm gonna set boundaries and not even answer emails, but the fact that you're like looking at them and you know they're there, it's almost like you this anxiety sits in the background. 
I think, and I mean, I think especially like with this work-life balance that's happening in the remote and hybrid sort of context, it's almost hard to know where to draw that line where this is work and then now it's home life and mm. it's like the lines blend. It does, but don't, um, don't managers and leaders have a level of responsibility? So should they be sending emails out to somebody on a Sunday afternoon because you know, they're the leader, they're important, doesn't that then almost set a culture that says, well, given I've just sent you an email, you need to reply? So actually, sort of, some of this stuff has to come from the top, which mm -hmm. is we are going to take time off, we are going to enjoy our weekends, you know, and if the chief exec wants to write emails on a Sunday afternoon, well, that's fine, but close your access off so that they don't actually go until you open your laptop on Monday morning, for example. Do you think there's a, uh, are you noticing a generational difference? Because, for example, you know, working for big companies myself and having managed a bunch of different teams, um, I'm a bit of a, like, I guess, I don't want to say old millennial, but like mid-millennial, where I do totally relate to that mindset, that anxiety of, you know, am I working enough and having this, like, guilt of not doing more, whereas... I've had the privilege to manage the generation like right under me and they are so much, I've noticed anyways, they're so much better at drawing the line and really knowing when to clock off and I feel like because they're just so, they're brought up at a younger age in this conversation of work-life balance. Do you mm. feel like it's usually, does it affect more like an older generation because that's kind of the more traditional mindset or do you think it also affects young people too today? just as much I think there are two traits amongst younger people that I see so I see some of what you've just described as particularly millennials who are have got very strong boundaries um, are a lot less engaged in work see work as very much a means to an end um, seem pretty clear that they're not going to develop strong bonds with an employer they're going to kind of use the workplace for their own ends, if you like. Right. So it's very much a contract of employment on their terms, if you like, rather than on the employer's terms. So I think that's to be admired. But simultaneously, I also see an awful lot of people in the younger generation who have grown up in this culture of, um, certainly in, in the education system, where you've got to get A stars, you've got to get this, you've got to get that. And when they go into the workplace, they seem to have no idea what good looks like. Because unless it's exceptional, well, it's just not acceptable. Mm. And so they get driven into, well, I just throw everything I've got at something because maybe that might just be good enough. So they have no sense of what good looks like. Mm. And therefore, all they do is throw everything they've got at it. And it is completely unsustainable. Mm. Because all they do is just work every minute they've got and pray to God that it's good enough. Right. And it's quite so scary. Quite scary. I mean, we definitely, I know, are in a culture where, you know, we breed perfectionism and, you know, while I, do, look, I do appreciate and I think it's important to have pride in, in what you do and every job that you do for sure, I think, yeah, there's a balance of like not at the expense of your own mental health and your own, you know, your own happiness and I think there is a balance. Um, we talk about work-life balance for the individual a lot, I feel, anyways. Um, what we can do to 
create more balance and like just a sustainable schedule but then like what then what can organizations and employers do to make sure that they're like you're saying lead by example you know set up certain boundaries i don't i don't necessarily think that companies today see it in their benefits to you know work their employees to the ground it's mm. well i think there's that balance isn't it, in, in terms of work-life balance between if you work your employer employees too many hours or you don't have a work-life balance productivity drops off a cliff yeah so it's not a kind of coincidence is it that the uk's got the longest working hours culture in europe but we've got just about the lowest productivity as well oh does it i didn't yeah. know that and we kind of know that because really? you can see it in yourself can't you if you do something for four five six hours we do it pretty well but the moment you get into your 13th or 14th hour yeah your productivity drops off a cliff yeah. doesn't it I and mean, that seems to be what's happening so we've got this very long hours culture mm-hmm. but we're really struggling with productivity our productivity is way below the kind of european average it's like we um i i find that interesting i didn't know that statistic um it's almost like we uh we measure our productivity or the quality of our delivery by like the number of hours put in not necessarily by so it's like quantity over quality and I I do agree I think sometimes you know because you can have a you can you can do a six-hour job in three hours on some days and then some days you know just things get a bit out of hand and it takes you way more time to do things but like our our work schedule the norm is so rigid it's like if I'm not productive between nine and six, then like I'm just I'm just doing a bad job. We don't have that kind of flexible work in bursts kind of mentality. It's kind of naive, isn't it, to believe that every job is sort of eight hours long? Because clearly the content is always going to be different. But I think we've imported that word that came from America, wasn't it? This whole presenteeism. A lot of the time we spend in the office is not because we're going to be productive. It's because we feel like we need to be seen to be there. Mm. You know, we're really bad form to leave bang on four o'clock. Everybody else leaves at 7 p.m. So maybe I just need to hang around till 7 p.m. Right. as well. A couple of years ago, um, Sweden played around with a four-hour day. Okay. So when people went to work at, I can't know, I say nine o'clock in the morning. And they worked flat out until one o'clock. And then they went home. And they actually found that productivity actually went up slightly. So people mm. were getting as much done in a four-hour burst as they'd been getting done previously in sort of seven and a half hours. It's interesting because I so I've I have I've worked with a few companies who, um, you know, one of them is called WorkLeap. They uh, they build softwares for for enterprises to integrate programs that really nurture culture, work-life balance, and Um, it's so interesting to like actually see the stats that it's actually really worth your investment to work a system that will promote a good balance so that your employees get to be able to enjoy their personal lives when they're happier because of that they come to work much happier too much more engaged um, much more refreshed you know they're not like uh, burning out through both ends and then obviously that makes them much more productive, more efficient. People take more pride in their work because they're so much more present. And that also, um, that also really nurtures loyalty. And so 
employees who do feel like they get this support and this um, respect of their work-life balance actually stay a lot longer at their yeah. with their with their organization. So I, I do I do think that companies now are waking up to like it's actually a, a worthwhile investment. Yeah, I think about any other equipment that an organization's got. You know, if they've got a fleet of cars, they get them serviced appropriately, don't they? They kind of top them up with water and blow the tires up and do all of those things meticulously so that their fleet of cars works really, really efficiently. But they don't always do that with their employees. They don't make sure their employees go home on time. They don't make mm. sure their employees get a good night's sleep. They don't make sure that their employees get a weekend off. And the, the better you take care of your employees, you're right, you know, at the end of the day, they will be more productive, they will be better employees. Mm. But the employer has a responsibility sometimes to kind of make sure that happens. Mm. I think, you know, I think back to something one of my, one of my favorite professors in university would say when he would, you know, prepare students to entering the workforce and he would say, you know, remember that as an employee or as somebody entering the workforce, you're, they're interviewing you, but you are also interviewing the company as well. Yeah. And it really is, I think it's, it's really about understanding the, 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 the power of a mutually beneficial relationship. It's not just about, well, we're giving you a job and you owe us your life. It's really great, you know, I scratch, my, uh, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Together we can have a really great relationship mm. as an employer and employee. I, I, I'm seeing personally a, a big shift in general. Um, I don't know if you agree. I don't know if I'm seeing a shift. I certainly have a view which is, I think across society when we have a vacancy and we want to recruit somebody, we tend to look at skills. So if we've got a job, whatever it might be, and we have a... Um, we have a job description or a person specification we look at somebody and think well can they do this job on the basis of have they done something similar before or have they got the qualifications to do that job so we're looking very much at skills um, I actually think it would be better if we looked at values so if we looked at the values of the organization and then we recruited people who aligned with those values there would be a more successful relationship because the employee and the employer would be aligned in terms of how they saw things. Because mm. um, it's so much easier to give people skills than it is to keep people's, give people values. You can't give people values, can you? So if somebody has got the right values, it's a fairly simple step normally to give them the skills to do the job. Mm. But if they've already got the skills but their values are misaligned, is that relationship ever going to work? Does that, so does that work if we if we turn the table so to look at you know what what committed employees value and then you as an organization just consider okay like what is the current culture that we're setting is that actually aligned with the values that quality employees look for and you know how do how do companies start to almost do this self-assessment do you do you work with a lot of um managers that have to consider that not really, but I think from my experience in the corporate world was companies get that the one way around. So they tend to drive the culture from the top. So the boardroom tends to say, well, this is the kind of culture we want to have. Right. Whereas actually it probably needs to come from the bottom and actually ask the employees, well, what culture have we actually got? Mm. And what matters to yeah, you? you know, and what do you think is important? 
because what's important in the boardroom is probably not that important on the shop floor. Mm. Um, I think quite often the boardroom thinks it's got a particular culture because quite often people say what they want to hear. But in reality, that's not the culture. That's not the way people are. Because I think, as a few people have said, culture is the kind of stuff that happens when no one's looking. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, like, culture, I think there's been a bit of a shift in the way that we understand work culture. It's not just about ping pong tables or, you know, free bagels on Friday mornings. It's more than that. Um, So, like, if we... In terms of the employees or, you know, just the individuals that you work with and understanding what matters to them in their workplace and what they would need to have a much more sustainable relationship with their job, what are the things that are important today that you think really resonates with people that companies should pay attention to? Well, I certainly agree with things like ping pong and bagels. I think culture is about social norms inside the organization so it's about how people talk to each other it's about how they refer to each other it's about the ways that people communicate what's it acceptable to say what's it not acceptable to say so it's about how we make each other feel inside the organization mm. and so that kind of ties very closely to like levels of engagement mm. so i think you know culture has to be driven from the bottom up can't really be effectively driven from the top down I don't think mm. so culture is very much about building the culture that the employees want because you're right if you do that then people hang around people stick about because they like the organization that they work for when it's imposed from the bottom down it tends to be something being done to you that maybe do you don't feel that comfortable with mm. so apart from like work perks and obviously creating an environment where, um, you know, peers and colleagues can blossom in, you know, great interpersonal relationships. What are the things that, what are the things that people need to feel happy and sustained today? Like what's the most, or the most important things? I think things like terms and conditions that they want, Mm -hmm. because again, a lot of terms and conditions that are pushed from the top down just don't work for people. So I think people quite like things like flexible benefits because everybody's got different circumstances. So if you can adjust your benefit system, if you like, to something that really works for you at that point in your life, that's A, going to really work, but it's also quite difficult for somebody else to replicate that. Right. So I think that's really, really important. Um, I think employees kind of want meritocracy they kind of want justice and fairness I think organizations clearly have views about who the strong performers are organizations have view about who to promote who not to promote but that just needs to feel fair I think I think most people know who the strongest performers are but when that process gets distorted by nepotism or whatever it might be Mm. then I think the whole pack of cards comes crashing down quite quickly so I think people maintain faith in an organisation if they feel that the processes inside it are fair. The moment they start to feel unfair, I think people distance from it quite quickly. Yeah, and I think like especially when it comes to performance evaluation, when you know, I, I, I think today you really see that you can't use a cookie cutter, one size fits all kind of approach, right? Everybody 
every every employee is different. Obviously, roles are different, but I think everybody has a very unique skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, different character traits, and obviously, it's very easy to pay attention to like the loudest person in the room, but. Um, I think people need to feel recognized and, you know, acknowledged and uh, rewarded um, in their like own merit. And I think that that's very important too to have that mm. very personalized approach to to management and to culture and to be able to like integrate that. And I think that process needs to be kind of quite human as well. I think it's probably one place where I'd be very critical of, you know, HR as a function, certainly in the UK, in that we've developed quite dehumanizing um, performance mechanisms. So people are getting to the end of the year and they're having a conversation about their performance and coming out being told, you're a C3. What the hell does that mean? You know, people want to have conversations. They want to be told, this is the stuff you do really well and keep on doing it. This is the stuff you do well, but you need to do more of it. And maybe this is the stuff that you should do less of, or this is the stuff you should stop doing. But it needs to be words. It needs to be real. People need to be able to relate to it. Mm. It's not about being categorized and being put in the A box or the C box. People just want to know, what do I do good? And what do I need to do more of? Or what do I need to do less of? So that's about having conversations. And I suppose that works best when those conversations are continuous. Mm. Whereas this whole ethos of the year-end appraisal, really it's just something that people fear, isn't it? Nobody really looks forward to those conversations. Yeah. And they tend to feel a bit categorised. I think that also plays into um, career development. I think that's really entering the conversation too about creating a really healthy, sustainable workplace is how do you keep employees feeling motivated feeling inspired feeling accomplished in what they do and i think this um you know providing training opportunities opportunities to explore their skills that's that also plays into it doesn't it yeah and we tend to have quite a narrow view don't we in the uk that being developed in your career is all about promotions and pay rises but it isn't just about that it's about having different opportunities, it's about growing skills, it's about working with different people. So we need to have a much wider interpretation of what development looks like. Mm. We talked about um, in our in our first segment, mental health and, and sometimes even just being able to support somebody else in their own challenges is therapeutic to ourselves. What's the importance of mentorship in the workplace? I think mentorship can be good in the sense of, particularly when people are new in roles, I think it can be quite reassuring for people, um, grow people's confidence, people's self-esteem, etc. I think there's also a bit of a danger with mentoring inside the workplace of how skilled are people to do that, because there can be a little bit of, well, you need to be just more like me. So it's about understanding that everybody's different and actually what one person's path to success looks like might be very different to somebody else's. Mm. But nevertheless, I think, you know, I think having a mentor system is helpful. I think it's good for growing confidence, it's good for growing perspective, and I think it's good for sort of covering people's blind spots. What do you mean by blind spots? A lot of people inside organisations just have quite a crude view of how to get to the top. It's kind of, you know, the straight line. I just need to go from here to the top as quickly as I can. 
but that actually isn't the best way to go because it's about getting a broad basis of development, isn't it? So if you're going to run an organization, you need to understand how the whole organization works. You kind of need to be able to appreciate how that bit works and how that bit works. And you can't do that unless you move around and actually have a really broad basis of experience. Mm. But sometimes people don't want to do that because that takes time. So they just want to make the quickest route to the top. But that kind of then builds you with a very kind of narrow focus and a very narrow band of experience. Yeah, and I mean, how does that play into um, having purpose in your job? I mean, I think you need to find... I mean, I don't know, like, is... uh, I would think that having these milestones attributed to, like, roles and salaries and promotions, I mean, it's very easy to project that, like, great, that's my next level of happiness, but... I think you hear a lot of stories of people that work super hard to get to a certain place and then at the end of the day they're not really happier because they haven't found more purpose in in their in their careers i think you see that a lot i see that now i see a lot of senior people come along and and, and literally say that i've spent my whole life getting to the top of this organization and i just climbed the wrong organization this is not where i want to be but you get so wrapped up sometimes in i need to achieve this i need to achieve that that the journey in itself becomes everything but then when you get to the top of the mountain and look around that's not the mountain you wanted to climb up Mm. so I think that's probably important on the journey that you have a lot more check-in points that's probably why things like mentoring are really really important we I mean it reminds me a little bit of um what what is that what's the phrase that we've been seeing in the media in the last uh, couple years uh this era that we're in the great resignation Mm -hmm and how more and more people kind of, you saw this trend, people resigning, and is, I mean, is that, I think it's linked to realizing, oh my gosh, like I need, I need to get a little bit more happiness or purpose out of my job, and what am I doing with my life, and life is so short, and what do you think of that? I think it's partly that, but is it also driven by, um, I haven't really got any work-life balance so actually I can take a little bit of control and step back and start to kind of take have things slightly on my terms more than on the employer's terms because the balance is is kind of wrong but also I think I see a lot in millennium people or millennial people rather um, that they're not as tied into the corporate life it doesn't really appeal to them in the same way Mm. I think if you go back many years the deal with the corporate world was well you sign up man and boy and work for us for the next 40 years and you have a job for life and you'll be very very, you know, very well rewarded I think millennials think well it isn't going to be like that I'm going to give my heart and soul to an organisation but at the first kind of financial downturn I'll just get retrenched and I'll be out on the streets so actually do I really want a world like that mm. so actually I think it's about taking back control and actually my relationship with work is going to be on my terms and I'm going to actually decide I'm going to have a much more relaxed relationship with work. It's on my terms. Are those the kind of conversations that you have more and more with people that you see in your in your practice? This kind of like working towards feeling empowered as an employee? or I don't know whether I have those conversations. I have a lot of conversations with people who are frustrated with the workplace. They don't feel like it's serving them particularly well and they're searching and looking for something else. Okay. So they certainly don't like the corporate world. They definitely would search for working for themselves. I think working for yourself seems to be very, very attractive amongst young people. 
I mean, it's attractive, but it's got its, I mean, you know, pros and cons anywhere you look at it. Uh, I get working in a much more of a corporate setting, you get this idea of a job security, working for yourself. I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're gambling a lot more. I think the, the, the mm. risks are a bit higher sometimes. I don't know, that's just my own experience as an entrepreneur, but. What I would say though, is I'm very kind of attracted to how differently they see the world. So they don't think about, I'm gonna work for myself and I'll build a factory and I'll make something and I'll sell it. They're much, much more innovative. So they're very, very creative about the kind of businesses they want to build. So they're building businesses that they can run from their bedroom. They're building businesses that actually have got a you know, very unique model. And you know, I've got clients who are 20 years old and are making half a million a month. Wow. By just taking that risk. And, just by taking that yeah. risk and developing something that's incredibly unique. How sustainable is, how long-term those businesses are, I don't know. Mm. But they can create incredibly successful businesses very, very quickly. But also, like, not everyone is cut out for that. And I, I wouldn't, you know, in the same, uh, that conversation about, like, not imposing what we think works best for us as what's going to work for others. I think some people are really happy and really benefit from having that structure, from having a place to go every day. I mean, you know, we, we were talking about interpersonal relationships at work and obviously mm. like that can be uh you know that can create a lot of um stress and anxiety when that doesn't go well but you know we forget to talk about how we we get a lot of our social um uh it fills up our social tank in a way when we get to go into work they're the you know our colleagues are people that we interact with the most sometimes more than our own family members right so i mean there's I think there's definitely pros and cons with each type of work structure you build for yourself. I think it's maybe just a matter of figuring out what really works for you, what's really sustainable for you. That's different for everyone. Yeah, but I think that's more of a generational thing, isn't it? So I think for some people who've had a history of working in the office and now they're working at home, yeah, they do sort of mourn the coffee machine conversations. They do moan you know do miss those conversations they had walking down the corridor with people or in the lift or whatever those kind of deepening of work relationships that happened in informal settings but for the younger generations they've never had that so they don't miss it because they've always worked online and their interactions with people have always been through teams meetings so there is no social element to it particularly right they don't really have work night outs or whatever they've just never had that they don't have those deeper understandings with people you know, I work with lots of people who've got jobs, who've got may have 30 or 40 colleagues, and they've never physically met them. Hmm. But they don't worry about the fact that they've never met them because they that's know just them. how it it's is. Just, that's how it yeah. is. Because, if you've grown up to live online, I mean, that's, yeah. that is your normal. Yeah, they don't, they don't feel the need to have that deeper relationship with people and know if they've got kids or whatever because it's never been an issue for them. Well, wait, when you say that, I have to push back a little bit because... You can know your colleagues deeply. I mean, I've, I've worked with remote teams for many years, even before the pandemic, because I always freelanced. And, you know, you really do get to know someone. I mean, I look at Ben, for example, on our team, and him and I knew each other for a couple of years, and we never met in person. But we had our moments where, you know, you do nurture your peer relationships on the side, where you take moments either right before your meetings or, you know, at the end of the day where you connect on Teams or on Zoom and 
you chat about someone's weekend or you know you share some of the things you're going through in your mm-hmm. personal life i do think that we're creating organic deep connections even in a in a virtual remote world you know that is how our generation exists now i think that depends though it depends on the personalities and you know, how gregarious you are because you know there are quite a lot of people i talk to who work at like call centers from home and they may only have one team meeting a week and it's like on a Friday morning. Mm. But there is no social chit-chat. It's just let's run through the numbers and then everyone just leaves the call. And other than that, they don't really have any interaction with their colleagues. Mm. So it's quite a lonely world sometimes and yeah. they don't know their colleagues well. So then in, in those cases, that's very important, I would say, for, an, for organizations to set up, to structure time and, and put time aside for team get-togethers or you know brainstorms or more than weekly weekly statuses I mean just in what I've I've heard how people run meetings today is they always like they really take like let's take five or ten minutes before we start and we get into it on a Monday to be like how was everyone's weekend and let's do a bit of a roundtable anyone has anything fun to share or I've experienced like virtual happy hour on a Friday And I think people, the organizations are just trying to recreate these moments. But I can appreciate that that can be unique to every organization. I think you still have very traditional kind of... I think you get mixed feedback from that. So you get some employees who think that's really valuable and really, really good. But I've had quite a lot of employees said, well, that's just bullshit, I don't like it, and actually refuse to put their cameras on because they don't want people to see inside their home right? and make judgments about them. So they're happy to join the team's call, but... They don't actually want the camera on and they're just not interested in how somebody else's cat is or whatever. And they're incredibly cynical about it. Yes, yeah, true. Animals. We're yeah. getting to know a lot of animals through Zoom. <laughs> People's, you know, dogs and cats appearing on camera. But I don't think we can take it as a universal thing that people like that interaction. For some people, they're just really, really uncomfortable with it. Mm. That's fair. What's, um, what's the current trend nowadays, you know, we talk about work-life balance, maybe being a, I want to say more accessible or maybe differently accessible because of this like remote hybrid trend that we're seeing. But when it comes to, let's say, burnout, which is like a big, big buzzword in the corporate world, how have you noticed like, I don't know, a spike or decrease in numbers with this hybrid system or just the same? I don't think it's really changed. I think Certainly during the pandemic, having lots of conversations with people who would say, I'm really uncomfortable with my team working from home because I think if somebody's not visible, how do I know they're working? And I would always say to those people, well, the people who are working from home will work pretty much the same at home as they did in the office. So the people who are going to skive off at home, you know what, they were probably skiving in the office too. <laughs> they were that person who did laps of the floor or did, you know, trips to the smoking room or trips to the coffee machine or the water fountain or whatever. So I don't think it's really changed. I think your relationship with work is probably going to be broadly the same whether you're in the office or whether you're at home. And the productivity figures seem to bear that out. So basically, we're, I guess burnout is still a very common phenomenon. Yeah, there's still people at work, who, people who work, who work from home, who still do 70-hour, 80-hour weeks, that's not going to change mm. because that's their relationship with work. And so, okay, so burnout, just have a bit of a moment to define it well. 
what's the difference with burnout and just being exhausted and needing a Friday off? I think one leads to the other. Okay. So I think repeating an unsustainable work-life balance or work pattern burns you out over a period of time to the extent where there'll become a day where actually you can't repeat the cycle. That's where the burnout comes, isn't it? Mm. It's when the whatever you've been doing for however long you've done it, there will become one day where actually you can't do it anymore. So you think when the alarm clock goes off at 5 a.m. and you've got to be on the train at 6, suddenly that day you say, I can't do this anymore. That becomes that day of reckoning, doesn't that? Mm. Do you feel like you, when you speak to your clients, you engage more in the conversation of, I'm starting to feel tired and exhausted, or is it usually once it's all come crashing down? and the burnout has already been hit? It tends to go with, people don't feel it the same way all the time. So they go through phases of coping with it slightly better than at other times. So they go up and down a little bit. So they tend to have the conversation with me when they're on the downward trend of this is all getting on top of me. This is getting too much. But they're normally not at the point there where I have to stop this. And they're usually grappling for I need your help for how I can better sustain this. Mm. So they usually start from a point of, well, I just need to find a better way of working 80 hours a week. Right. They don't start with, uh, maybe I need to cut back to 40 hours a week. Yeah. It's, can you help me to keep doing the impossible? Mm. And we quite often have this conversation about, so what you want me to do is to give you more than 24 hours in a day. And they'll all go, yeah, 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 that's perfect. Yeah, that's not possible. And I always say to them, but that'll just make things worse. Yeah. Because you just work even more hours. Yeah, I would. So I think at the point where they come and talk, it doesn't tend to be, we're not really at the point of finding solutions at that point. We're, we tend to be having conversations about how can I just perpetuate this? Because it tends to be people turn the gun on themselves. It's, I'm not good enough. I ought to be able to do this. Everybody else is working 80 hours a week and now I'm not keeping up. Mm. So they tend to be looking for, maybe I should drink more water, maybe I should do this or do that. But you have to come back ultimately to a some tough love almost to say, but this isn't sustainable, is it? Mm. But sometimes that's quite a long journey. Right, it's like, uh, it's like undoing a complete different, uh, undoing a whole mindset about work. Like you say, you're projecting a lot of your personal value and you're projecting it maybe in the wrong, the wrong, you're looking at the data from the wrong perspective. It's looking at the quantity of hours rather than the quality of the work that you're delivering. Like you said, yeah, it's, it's a lot of like 80 hours I'm working on. It could be quite time. a crude thing. You know, you kind of get people who say, I've just got promoted, so I've got to work a bit harder. Yeah. So I'm throwing 10 hours a week more at the job. Right. And then you say to them, but you're still relatively junior. So if you get three more promotions, I reckon you're up to about 120 hours a week. How does that feel? And they're like, oh, I'll come to that when I get to it. But it's like, you know, no matter how big the job is, you can't keep throwing more hours at it. You're going to have to make some difficult choices about how productive you are. But people do have this sort of beautiful naivety about them. Well, I can, if I just throw more hours at it, it will be okay. Right. But it is just unsustainable. But they perhaps find that really hard to see. We're only human. Because you're in the middle of it, aren't you? Mm. And as with all jobs, you know, people are just so eager to impress. What, so what would you say is the best thing for 
as individuals for us to do then to make sure that we're catching ourselves in the moments where we forget to have our own best interests at heart and we can make sure to like I don't know keep ourselves on the on the line when it comes to having a good balance how do we how do mm. how do we look at our lives and we know that we're ensuring that we can be our own advocates for like sustained you know productive life I think we've talked about this before I think we're all really good aren't we at giving advice to other people yeah and we're not very good at taking it ourselves I think when we're in grip of the corporate world or we're in the grip of the workplace and everything's feeling unsustainable have a look at some of the people have a look around at your colleagues have a look at some, maybe some of your friends and watch and compare how you observe them and then compare and contrast how they're working because actually you might start recognizing yourself mm. I think sometimes a good way to get some perspective is actually look at some other people and think if they came to you and said how am I doing or what should I change you'd probably give them some quite hard line advice right but you're never going to turn that on yourself directly we're just a bunch of preachers yeah we are yeah you know we watch other people and think wow what are you doing and then you look at yourself and think god I'm doing exactly the same mm. But we see it easier in other people than we see it in ourselves. And I mean, to draw a parallel a little bit on some of the earlier chats that we had, I think the power of talking, checking in with your peers. Your, I mean, because, you know, you say, like, observe how other people are experiencing their, their work life. But talking to them, sharing about maybe some of your concerns or your stress, or your anxieties that you're having. Um, you know, I think in general, a, a well-structured organization has, um, you know, everybody has a line manager, a safe person to go to that can sort of help guide you and just listen to you. And like you said, that opens the door to getting some perspective that maybe you didn't realize you were missing. Yeah, I think it's a good point as well. You talked right at the outset about who this podcast would be interesting mm. Poor. Is it for the employees or the employers? Well, I mean, I think it's both. But but. I think there's a third group. I think I get clients that come along and it's like my partner or my husband or my wife or whoever has got no work-life balance. Oh, and that's interesting. It's yeah. destroying their life. But you know what? It's destroying mine too because mm. we now don't do anything. We have no social life. They're always tired. They don't want to go anywhere. And actually, I don't work for that goddamn company. And actually, I'm now in my life ruined by them because they can't get it right mm -hmm. and that can be really really hurtful and really frustrating yeah because you don't just take your own life out but you can take everybody else's out with it well because when you're exhausting yourself at work and I, I you know I get that but like when the, it's when it's an environment that's like not sustainable obviously that affects the how you show up then at home how you show up when you come home from work or on the weekends where you can't necessarily be present or you know, like we said before, like you show, you're just, you're just an asshole because you're yeah, unhappy. Yeah, consequences are, you know, you're, yeah. a, you're a shit husband or a shit wife or a crap parent or a rubbish friend or a really unreliable friend because mm. you don't prioritize any of those other people because work's just taken over. Mm. It's easy for me to say this because I feel a bit like an ex-smoker, you know, I used to be one of those people. You used to be a workaholic? Yeah, I was a workaholic. Okay. I used to spend hours and hours at work. And I think a lot of people have said this recently. No one ever in their retirement thinks, God, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Yeah, that's true. That never happens. Mm. 
That's true. I mean, I think everything kind of feeds into itself, right? At the end of the day, I mean, you, you know, like they always say, like, don't bring, don't bring your personal life into work, like compartmentalize, right? That's how you show up as a professional. But at the same time, like, you know, make sure that you're creating for yourself an environment that doesn't force you to bring your work problems at home. Challenges at work, I think, are totally normal. I mean, that's the whole point of a good a good hard day's work is to feel like great. We've surmounted challenges. We uh, we um, you know we um, we got over the hump. But I think when we talk about an unsustainable environment, it's when it's really affecting other aspects of your life. It's it's poison that gets in everywhere, right? Well, it's self perpetuating, isn't it? Because the more you get your work life balance wrong. You don't have anything else in your life because your friends have all disappeared because you've let them down. You don't have any hobbies or interests. Mm. Your family have all found other stuff to do. So ultimately, all you're left with is work. It's all you've got to talk about. It's all you do. Yeah. And everything else has just drifted away. Mm. So it self-perpetuates itself over time if you don't address it because you don't have anything else. Work is all you have. Yeah, we, you know, we were talking about entrepreneurs and... Um, you know, when you find your passion and that really drives you and it's like, you know, um, a 50, 60, 70 hour work week doesn't feel as tedious, you know, because it almost feeds into things that you personally enjoy. It, it, it feeds you. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about like a heavy, toxic, non-sustainable work and workload, it's not also just the hours because I think people can also find a lot of happiness in putting a lot of hours in something that really drives them and fuels their soul, we're really talking about when the value exchange isn't there, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's also about anything done complete to excess is not healthy, is it? Whether that would be playing golf or whatever, you can't do something to the extreme all the time Mm. without having some sort of impact for you. So being passionate about your own business being an entrepreneur is all fine but there has to always still be a balance doesn't there that's true yeah you can put your all your eggs in one basket you just won't sustain it will you sooner or later it won't serve you so it's about you know don't smoke it all at once kind of thing nice um i like i mean i like this investment idea you have to i mean obviously diversify your portfolio um but when you said before nobody gets to retirement in which as they had put more time into the office and I get that. I think, I think people would regret not, um, not risking attempting at developing a career that they would have seen themselves very passionate in. I think that's very important. Um, but it's also about investing and nurturing the other things in your life that will find you in the moments where maybe you're not working anymore, like you can't work. And then being able to have a full life where you've got a whole bunch of things, plus a great work life. I mean, that's the dream. Yeah, one feeds the other, doesn't it? Yeah. So time away from work is incredibly important because mm. we go back to work refreshed, don't we, with an appetite and hungry. Um, and that's what we lose in the work-life balance loss, isn't it? We don't have that recuperation. Mm. We don't have that other distraction. Every it's like Groundhog Day, isn't it? Every day is almost a repetition of the yeah. previous day. Oh, God, yeah. And that just feels like such a wasted life, doesn't it? 
So when people are finding themselves demotivated, it feels like Groundhog Day, you know, something's got to give and nothing's given. What, like, some somebody listening to this and, and, and this resonates, like, what, what would you now as a counselor, and I know you do give a lot of, um, you know, business guidance and things like that, what would you advise to be the things to look into or to look at, questions to ask yourself, things to investigate, like, where would you, where would you suggest somebody starts? If they're kind of feeling like, ah, oh, this kind of sounds like me. This is where I'm at. I'm not in a great place work-wise. I think the first place is to sort of look outside yourself. I think people people get very hemmed in. So people think, this is what I do. This is all I can ever do. Um, I don't have any choices. You know, I started doing this job 10 years ago. I'm kind of okay at it. I get paid for doing it. I'm comfortable. I feel safe but I'm really unhappy. And I suppose the best example I can give of where that can change is you get somebody to come to see who's just got made redundant mm. and the whole world's fell apart. You know, they're tearful. Their life's come to an end. I've lost my job. This is just truly the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And, you know, and they are really, really down, really upset, really depressed. If you see that same person maybe three months later, they'll often say... It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Because it just opened so many other doors. Mm. And those doors would never have opened. If you um, weren't forced to look unless at... Unless somebody yeah. forced you to do it. But you can do that stuff for yourself. Mm. But you've got to look outside yourself and look at what the opportunities are. Because no one should ever feel trapped in a job. Mm. There's always something else you can do. So looking outside of yourself. Um, that's very interesting. I think taking an inventory of all the other aspects of your life. And be adaptable around your skills because although you sit in one job title, sit back and look what you really do and actually what else could you do with those skills? Mm. People tie skills to a particular job or a particular profession, but they're a lot more adaptable than they think they are. Mm. And I think too, like when we talk about, um, you know, shaking it up a little bit just to uh, find new challenges in our work we sometimes kind of think very black and white drastic change and you quit my job you know uh you know short of moving to another city or country uh, apply to another company just reset completely but actually it doesn't have to be that dramatic right you can um start having a conversation with let's say your your boss your line manager and mm. saying hey i'm kind of in, i'm doing this right now i'm kind of very curious about this you know is there something i can do to take on something else that just you know spices it up and I get to like scratch that itch maybe there's something there I don't know yeah so I think have those conversations and think about what you can do internally but I think the other thing people do is is they they talk themselves out of other opportunities so they see a job description for a job and maybe they can do five things out of the eight things on the list of these are the responsibilities of the job what people don't realize is that you very rarely get a candidate who ticks all eight boxes anyway. Yeah, skills you, are taught. Yeah, yeah. so if you, yeah. if you tick half the boxes, you know what, what the hell, throw your hat in the ring. What's the worst that can happen? But people talk themselves out of it. Mm. They won't want me. Well, if you don't apply, you're not going to get the job, are you? If mm. you throw your hat into the ring, there's every chance you just might. So what can employers do to kind of support individuals that make up their workforce then in that case 
I think it comes back to what we talked about earlier, which is about conversations. Have honest conversations with employees. You know, nobody comes to work to be a bad employee, do they? Nobody comes mm. to work to do their worst. But sometimes people are in a particular job and they're not very good at it. They're not going anywhere. Have that conversation. Because somebody could kind of leave and go somewhere where they can be really successful and be really, really happy. But if there is a future for somebody in an organisation, well, create the pathway for somebody, mm. help them through it. But just be really honest with people because we can't sit here and say everybody's career is going to work out just fine where they are because that's not true. Mm. But if it's not, then have the conversation. But equally, if it is, again, have the conversation. But the moment, I think a lot of employees just feel a bit lost because nobody really has that conversation with them. They feel like they're responsible for their career. Mm. But quite a lot of people have no experience of that. They don't know the wider organisation. They don't know the wider opportunities across society. So somebody needs to have that conversation with them. It's about lighting the way a little bit. Um, is this something that you think we're going to see more and more uh, companies hiring consultants to come in and... I guess, like walk them through how to reinvigorate their culture, that it's more adapted to the needs of today from a mental health and like just a cultural perspective. Like you said before, sometimes having a third party, it's a bit unbiased, more objective, can be really helpful. I think there's a real divergence. I think... There's a fair chunk of employees who are who are doing that, are very concerned about their culture, very concerned about engagement, they're very, you know, they're very concerned about the benefits of diversity um, and creating the right workspace because they've cottoned on to the fact that it's a really competitive market. And so recruiting and retaining the right people is kind of critical for them achieving their business objectives. Mm-hmm. But just as equally, I think there are just as many employers who are just scrambling. They don't really understand the labour market. They're recruiting the wrong people because they're the only people that they can find. And then they're just experiencing huge levels of turnover. And so they're almost lurching from one crisis to another. So it's almost a bit like having a bucket and there's a hole in the bottom of the bucket and everything just keeps dropping through. Mm. And so their approach at the moment is just to keep throwing more in the top. Right. without really realising it's dropping out at the bottom. So I think we're seeing a divergence from people who are really, really strategic to people who are being really, really tactical. Mm. And I don't know what the percentages of which are, but there's two very divergent approaches, I think, right now. And one's clearly going to succeed, and the other one, I think, is probably not. Mm. So I guess to like sum it up and to leave it open-ended for people who are, who are listening to this and who see the, who understand the importance of supporting healthy balance within the workplace for both individuals and organizations. What would you, what would you hope? I mean, it's kind of cheesy to say, but like, what would you hope for tomorrow? What do you think is, what do you think is a, what do you think is a, is an appropriate mindset to start having now to like, set the stage for a better future for the individual well for both i mean you know we talk about better workplaces i mean i feel like 
an employer wants a better workplace just as much as an individual. So yeah, I mean, I, I kind of both. I don't know if it's like two different answers or there's if there's a. Well, they're obviously related, aren't they? Because they're the same ends of the same thing, aren't yeah. they? Or the ends of the same thing. I think from the employee's point of view, put yourself at the centre of things. I think set boundaries, set parameters. You know, there is absolutely no reason if you're contracted to work 37 and a half hours while you're working 70, 80 hours. It's not sustainable. Um, I think be as productive as you can be in the workplace, but then try and shorten the hours as much as you can. Mm. Um, because at the moment with the long hours culture, I think we are quite unproductive and that almost creates the longer hours. So there is definitely something about... To like make up for it and then, that. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think the employer, again, needs to do the same thing. So start to set limits in terms of what time the office opens, what time it closes. Mm. Um, if people are working from home, start to make sure that people are logging off. You know, just drive the behaviours you want to see. Mm. You know, to start to give out the right sorts of messages, which is discourage the long hours culture mm. encourage people to get rest encourage people to take their leave mm-hmm. you know lots of people end the year with 40 or 50 days holiday that they haven't that taken they never take, yeah. Yeah. or they end up taking it in November mm. they don't go anywhere they just sit at home mm. and probably read their emails or whatever so so much more of an active intervention yeah, active really intervention and drive the right behaviors yeah. because it's not about the work is it it's about what you do when you're not at work mm. Um, I mean, that feeds into how you show up at work then the next day, right? Yeah, I worked for a company, I won't say who, but they had a really active scheme around encouraging people to do stuff out of work. Mm. So they were sponsoring people to go off and do hobbies and activities and encouraging people to do other stuff, which again is a really, really positive idea and it's really, really well received. Mm. Yeah, no, I think... I think um, I think individuals appreciate that in, in, in companies. Um, I would say, I mean, I guess maybe I've just been lucky, so I'm probably just seeing it from my lens where I'm seeing, oh, you know, like much more good balanced culture in, in the workplace. But, you know, yeah, I guess it really depends the industry um, being your own advocate at the end of the day and just, yeah, I don't know, making sure you like you have your back. Yeah, and I suppose like anything else in life, isn't it? Work's supposed to be something you enjoy. Yeah. Kind of employers want employees to have a smile on their face. They kind of want them to be positive advocates for the organization. People work in extensive hours. The smiles just disappear, don't mm. they? Mm. Well, um, I think that I know there's a lot of work to do, but I definitely think that people are having those conversations more and more. I also think a lot of these ideals are becoming non-negotiables for employees and I do think that that's actually you know I think change is happening from the ground up like you said Mm. I think the top is listening too I think we can create a lot of bridges so yeah any last words no I think that's everything for me yeah thank you you so much thank you for having me on and um yeah I guess for anybody who is listening to this And it's 5 p.m. on a Friday. Go log off. Go have a drink. Go enjoy time with your friends and family. Absolutely. Until the next time. Thank you. Thank you, Nigel.